glad each and every one of you are here and uh, look forward to uh, the rest of this time together. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, the movies. Okay? My fave. Love this movie. Love the story. No wonder they made a book out of it. Nobody caught that. Man, i got to work on my stand-up. No wonder they made a book out of such an amazing movie. Rumor has it the book came out first, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Love the story. Love the journey they're on, the intensity, and of course, the glorious victory that comes about 11 hours later in the movie. The enemy's defeated, an unthinkable uh, enemy of unthinkable strength that seems impossible is defeated, and there's this glorious king who assumes a throne, and then of course, all happy endings, ladies, end with a what? Wedding, right? And so here he is at the end, Aragorn and his bride, and this decisive victory, the freedom from Middle-earth, it's such a hopeful, happy ending for the people. And everybody loves a happy ending, right? I don't know about you, but Judges feels a little bit like Middle-earth, right? There's all these swords and heads and victories and battles and just an odd, odd book for us in our time to look back into. And, and yet, we think in the point of this book that we've come to our desired happy ending. We have the warrior who gained victory over a very oppressive Midian. The text says that they were brought very low because of Midian. And so this victory is achieved. The princes of Midian, the kings of Midian have been defeated. They've been killed. And now it seems as if we come into a very happy state, a happy ending. We're just basically waiting for the wedding at this point. So does this happy ending come for the people of Israel? And to that we turn our attention to Judges chapter 8. Grab your Bibles, Judges chapter 8. We're actually only going to read today verses 22 through 35. Make a little bit of a mention back to uh, the earlier parts of chapter 8. And we will also talk briefly about chapter uh, 9 into chapter 10 with uh, Gideon's son Abimelech. Let's uh, follow along with me, verses 22 through 35. Is this the freedom, the happy ending that Israel has hoped for? Verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. 
and besides the collars that were round the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son and called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash his father at Ophrah of the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, Amen. Gideon wins. Gideon achieves decisive victory for Israel. If you look back in chapter 8, you see that after defeating the princes, Oreb and Zeb, of Midian, they, he goes on and defeats the kings of Midian. He even gets into a little squabble with some of the other Israelites, and at the end of the day, he comes out victorious. He's on top. And uh, uh, the people of Israel, uh, maybe hesitantly, they recognize this nonetheless. And what do they do? They want to reward him for his heroic deeds. So the people of Israel go to Gideon, and they ask him, be our king, basically. Rule over us. You and your son and your grandson also. You be our king. You rule, rule over us. In some ways, it was an expression of gratitude for what he had done. It makes sense to us, right? I mean, after all, he took out the oppressive nation of Midian. But look at the reason why they, at least in the text, tell us uh, why they asked Gideon to be their king. Look at what it says. It says, uh, you rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Right? After all that had taken place, there is a disconnect between uh, what the narrator of the book of Judges accounts, and there's a, uh, between that and between uh, what the people of Israel, how they kind of interpret the events that take place. Right? They, if you look back at 7, uh, the, the Lord was concerned that if they have too many men, that they'll conclude, by my own hand, uh, I've been delivered. Remember that? Last week? And so God basically reduces the army from 32,000 down to 300. Why? So that they do not conclude, my own hand has delivered me. So the point wants to be made, and it was made, that the victory came because of the power and the majesty and the victory and the grace of the Lord for his people 
through the weakest of his servants. But somehow we see the people of Israel just don't see that. They don't get it. It doesn't register. And so they look to Gideon. They say, you're the source of our deliverance. You're the one that has saved us. Therefore, we want you to rule over us as a reward and as a token of our submission and our allegiance. You did it. These people are clearly misunderstood about how they're saved and who, in fact, saves them. And I don't think they're any uh, different than the people of our world today. Maybe even some of the Christians sitting here this morning. Are you clear about the essence, the nature of your salvation? Do you understand who has saved you? Or have you wrongly concluded, my own hand will save me? Or some other person or thing will deliver me from my greatest issues that I face in this life. It's important for us to know that it is the Lord alone that is our Savior. And it is by His power and His grace alone that we are saved from our oppressive enemies. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. But nonetheless, this is the nature of people to misunderstand to distort the nature and source of salvation. But Gideon seems to get it, right? Gideon understands. He went through all those signs. He saw what the Lord alone did, and he blew the trumpet, he threw down the canisters, the whole place caught on fire, right? And then all the people fled, and they turned their swords against one another, and he knew for sure that it wasn't his doing. And so how does he respond? He says, I will not rule over you. My son won't rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Some would say amen. The Lord will rule over you. He gets it. He understands completely that he didn't save them. It was the Lord. It's not he that would be the fitting king for them, but it would be the Lord. Man, this guy's got a solid working theology. He gets it, doesn't he? He understands Truly, that the Lord is our king. The Lord is in charge. The Lord is sufficient. The Lord is powerful. The Lord is good. The Lord, indeed, is our king. He understands that. He doesn't need any replacement, right? Gideon gets that, doesn't he? So he says with his words, the Lord is your king. But as we read the rest of the narrative, we see he says one thing, and in many ways seems to do another. There's a disconnect in what he says and how he lives. Right? Some of you may be familiar with how people give and receive meaning in communication, right? There is, there is the verbal part of communication, and then there is the what? Nonverbal part. Which do people believe more, the verbal or the nonverbal? Right. So if I say to you, tell me if you believe me. So glad you guys are here this morning. Really, we really want you to come back next week. Really, please, come forward. Why don't you come forward this morning? What are you thinking to yourself? This guy's got serious uh, issues, right? First of all, right? How about this when... Uh, I, I do such an amazing thing for my 
child to be remain nameless, uh, given their age. And uh, uh, given their age, they might say something like this, as I show myself to be a, a pretty gracious, generous dad. They might say something like, thanks, dad. Some of you know those, those ages. Again, to be nameless. Nonverbal. Which one do you believe? Are they grateful? How about my favorite when people read scripture? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his name. He has done great things for me. Come on, people. Give us a break. You know what I mean? Right? That's kind of what we see going on. There's a disconnect in Gideon's response and a disconnect. So on the one hand, Gideon is rejecting the offer to become king, but on the other hand, he's acting in a way that seems to assume that very role. Look at what takes place. He asks for the gold and the spoil from their victory, right? Listen, I don't want to be your king. That's for the Lord, but uh, <clears throat> let me tell you what. Why don't we take those earrings and all that gold? Why don't, why don't you hook me up? Right? He wants the rewards of being a king, but seems to not want the responsibility that come with being a king. And so they do it. They give him uh, all these earrings. They give him the spoil, 1,700 shekels of gold. That's 43 pounds-ish. Bottom line, that, that's a lot of money. That's a treasure fit for a king. And so Gideon is uh, really asking for a gesture of submission, which Daniel Bach points out in his commentary. So this act of giving is saying you're superior. You're above us. We give to you. It's an act of submission. Not only that, he obtains many wives and concubines that bore him many sons, right? He has one even from Shechem that gives birth to a child named Abimelech, which means my father is king. Interesting. Maybe we're reading into it too much. Looks like he's assuming the role of a king in some way, shape, or form. He intermarries with some of the women from Shechem, and he has a child, Abimelech. He has many wives, 70 sons. And so he's doing things that show us that in some way he's assuming the role of ruler, king. But if it couldn't get any worse, maybe these are just subtle errors, we see this. He takes this gold, he takes this offering, and what does he do with it? The passage tells us that he makes an ephod with it. Verse 27, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Makes an idol, people. He takes the reward of a victory that really came from the Lord, and he crafts an idol, an ephod. Now, an ephod was uh, like a garment that the high priest would wear. It was made of, of fine linen, a lot of beautiful colors, it would have 12 stones on it for the 12 tribes of Israel. It was something the high priest wore. It was a symbol of God's anointing, symbol of God's presence, and mostly it was used to discern the will of the Lord. So Gideon wants that, right? Gideon wants 
uh, this kind of assurance of the Lord's presence, of the Lord's anointing, of the Lord's an understanding of the Lord's will. But he does so in a way that the Lord does not sanction. He does so in a way that is in keeping with his own terms. Gideon wants something that only God can give him in a way that God prohibits. Sound familiar for us? Gideon is unsatisfied with the means by which God would reveal his will. He wants his own way. He wants more than what God has provided. He crafts an idol. He's not satisfied with what God has provided for him and given to him. I was talking to someone this week, and that person was wrestling a little bit with just some depression and despondency, some overwhelming sense of discouragement. And he, this person, he, man, I'm not good at this. He... He admits that he's really neglecting his time in the scriptures. And I thought, interesting. Right? There's always seeming to be a disconnect there, isn't there? Uh, let me just confess to you, I know those moments where our time in the scripture is not where it needs to be. It's not as much or maybe it's just minimal, whatever the case may be. And interesting enough, our psyche, our demeanor, our perspective on life really goes downhill quickly. Right? It's not like the word is just there to make us feel better. That's not what I'm saying. But man, there's a disconnect with our perception, our state of mind, and our interaction with God's Word, right? And, and, and I said, well, why are you not reading the Scriptures? I said, I don't know. I said, okay, fair enough. Let me tell you a little bit about my own heart. There's something inside of me that I look at it on my shelf or on my desk or next to my bed, and in the midst of my turmoil... I choose not to do it. Do you know why? Because there's something inside of me that would prefer to find another way. I don't know if that's you, but man, I, I'm going I'm to find a different way. It can't be that easy. It can't be that simple. It can't just be read that book. There's got to be another way. I know, I'm going to come up with my own way to feel better. Raise your hand if you've ever been there. Time and time again, I, I choose other things than just the simplicity of time in the scriptures. God's chosen way to dispense grace and wisdom to his people. Man, we want to find it some other way. We replace it. The fact is, as we were talking, we would rather escape reality than we would rather to withdraw grace from God to endure that reality, would we not? Tell me we would rather escape in Netflix or some other form of entertainment, really worship the gods of this world, not that TV viewing is bad, but we would rather in our lowest moment find ourselves attached to some screen because that makes us escape our reality rather than go to God for grace to endure that reality. It just feels better in the moment. And so the text says that Israel whored after this. They loved it. They looked at this, this either vestment or symbol, this image, and they said, give me some of that. I want that. That's great. Yes, Gideon. Hook us up. We want that all day long. Beautiful. Matter of fact, it's, it's so good that we're willing to walk away from the God that has saved us and delivered us, and we are willing to give ourselves to it. We are literally whoring after that God. We are prostituting ourselves. We are calling someone that is not our wife 
desirable and mine. That's what they do. That's the nature of idolatry. And that's what they do. They whore after it. They're bound by covenant to worship the Lord, and yet they give themselves to another. They whore. They prostitute. They commit adultery in worship. And so we read this, and we're just disappointed. Like, so much for the happy ending, right? This stinks. How can this be the word of God? So disappointing. We don't need some cute little answer to this. This stinks. This is disappointing. This frustrates us. On the heels of God-given success over enemies, this is what has happened? The demise of Gideon? Disappointing. His lack of integrity, his lack of perseverance to lead faithfully to the end for the people of God. That brings us to one conclusion. Even the most successful of leaders let us down. Even the most successful of leaders let us down when they lead us unfaithfully. Right? You know what I'm talking about. Over the last 40 years of just my life, I've seen, you've seen, you've witnessed in recent church history, successful leaders who let us down because they lead unfaithfully. You know what I'm talking about. You know about Jimmy Baker, right? You know about that in the, in the mid to late 80s. You know what he did, the televangelist that misappropriated funds, who, who was accused of raping a woman who eventually was convicted of a crime and went to jail. You know about Jimmy Baker. You know how disappointing that was for many people, whether or not you agree with his theology or not. What about Jimmy Swaggart in the late 80s? Prostitution, sexual misconduct. What do you think? Did that let down a number of people? I'll never forget, and I don't mean to embarrass her here. It, that was, Jimmy Swaggart was very significant to my mother in the mid-80s. She loved listening to his preaching. And you know what? It hurt her. It, it damaged, in many ways, uh, some of the witness that she had, with, whether it should or shouldn't, with our neighbors, a lot of mocking, a lot of increased doubt and skepticism. That was difficult for people. How about Ted Haggard? president of the National Association of Evangelicals, right? one of the leading voices against homosexuality, one of the leading voices about biblical marriage. And sure enough, he's caught with a dude. Falls from grace. What about recently, although maybe a little bit more ambiguous, with Bill Hybels, the pastor of Willow Creek? Is there a more significant, successful evangelical leader in the last 40 years than Bill Hybels? Whether you agree with him or not, gone. Disappoints us. One of the hardest ones for me, and again, I think this brother's in another category because he wasn't accused of any of these other things, but Pastor Mark Driscoll, his combatant leadership style, his domineering, his pride at times, his, his recklessness in relationships, and all of a sudden, overnight, a church of 14,000 people became nothing. And I said at one point, in the midst of his heyday, man, we can't lose this guy. He's preaching. We can't lose him. He's leading. He's gaining a voice in young men. He's got sound doctrine. Man, he's leading well. We need him. we can, We got to pray for his protection. And that disappoints us. Maybe it's closer to home. Maybe it was one of your own pastors growing up. I'll never forget uh, the, the people in our area that walked away from Christianity in the church because they were disappointed that a leader that they looked up to and trusted 
fell from grace and into sin. This is not an insignificant thing. Maybe it was a mom or a dad that you looked up to. We know this disappointment when successful leaders let us down by leading us in unfaithfulness. Man, this can easily create cynicism. This can easily creep in doubt. But we must not turn away from the faithfulness of our God because of the unfaithfulness of His people or those who are not His people. We must not uh, uh, buckle in our, uh, our uh, holding firm in our faith because of people who have sinned and sinned greatly. It is the Lord alone that is faithful. It is the Lord alone in which we trust. No human being is our Savior. It is only the Lord. And in some ways, all of this dis- disappointment just further highlights that. It is the Lord alone that we trust. Because look at what happens. His failing leadership leads the people to do the same. Man, these people weren't disappointed at all, actually. They were excited. Look at what happens. The people of Israel replace Yahweh. As soon as Gideon dies, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the, the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. Do you know what Baal, Baal Barith stands for? Lord of the Covenant. Are you kidding me? Lord of the Covenant? Yahweh's the Lord of the Covenant. And, uh, we're going to go with that one. That's the Lord of the Covenant. Offensively, shockingly, replace. Mm, we don't want that one. We'll take this one. They whore after it. And they replace Yahweh. What a tragic turn of events. We don't need to just look at leaders to be disappointed. We just look at people. The Lord had saved them and bought them, made promises to them. Yahweh took them out of Egypt, saved them from Midian. The Lord established, did this on the basis of the covenant that he established with them. The Lord, Yahweh, is the Lord of the covenant. And they go and say, nah, Baalbarith. Baalbarith. He's the Lord of the covenant. The nature of idolatry is replacement. Calling someone or something else some, that which God alone is, that which Yahweh alone is. Keller calls it counterfeit gods, comfort, convenience, approval, money, sexual pleasure, career success, anything that serves ourselves, anything that brings about our own temporal joy and pleasure, whatever makes us feel safe, in control, happy in the moment. We say no to Yahweh, no to the Lord God, and we say, I want that. That's more satisfying. I'm going to live in reference to that. I'm going to worship that. Not to bring Driscoll up again, but one of the most profound questions I think he ever asked in pointing out a truth was, where do you go in your, in your, in your lowest moment? Think about that. Where do you go in your lowest moment? Driscoll says, where you go in your lowest moment, is your functional Savior. You can say, the Lord is your King, but where you go in your lowest moment is your functional Savior. So where do you go in your lowest moment? Where do you go for relief, for escape, for peace of mind, for satisfaction when you're empty inside? 
That is your functional Savior. That is the thing that you will quickly replace God with and worship. Not only this, the people of Israel do not remember the Lord their God. This does not mean they had spiritual amnesia. It simply means that they did not live in uh, recognition of who he was in their daily life. They didn't worship him. They didn't honor him. They lived without acknowledging his nature and his goodness and his saving power. They said, eh, good for him. I'm going to do this. They didn't remember the Lord their God. And then you see that at the end, they did not show steadfast love toward Gideon. Right? We, didn't we start this whole passage with rule over us, bro? You and your son and your grandson. Thank you for all you've done. And now we've spiraled down to they did not show steadfast love. They did not keep covenant with Gideon for all he had done for them. Such a difference from the beginning, right? And are we to be surprised? Are we to be shocked that this is what happens in spiritual deterioration? Are we shocked when there's a massive disconnect in relationship with the Lord and all of a sudden it begins to affect our relationship with other people? Are we shocked at that? Shouldn't we expect this to be the disintegration of a nation? Where they're no longer keeping covenant with even their most successful of leaders? Really, they're not keeping covenant with one another. They're fractured. They've lost unity. They're isolating themselves from one another. Self-protection. They're losing the, some, the, the whatever unity they had at the beginning. They've lost it. And now that they're, re- they're rejecting their very Savior, at least in their own mind. That's what happens. When there is a disconnect in our relationship with God, it affects the people. It affects relationship with one another. Vice versa. If we're constantly withdrawing from God's grace, pursuing God in His Word, being a part of God's people in corporate worship, if there is this pursuit of God and this receiving of grace from His hand, guess what? That begins to overflow into our, into our marriages, into the relationship with our kids. It begins to affect, all of a sudden we want to forgive people who've wronged us and sinned against us. We love because He first loved us. There's always a connection there. So I wonder if there's anybody here today who's wrestling with unforgiveness and bitterness, impatience toward others, division in your home, discord at work, and you realize, man, all around me, everybody's out to get me, and I'm just mad at everybody. Maybe there's an unplugging that has taken place in your pursuit of God. When our covenant connection with God is disrupted in any way, it eventually leads to covenant disruption with other people. Be sensitive to that. Oftentimes, relational issues are like a signal. Is my heart right with God? 
Is there any unrepentant sin? Am I praying about this situation? Am I reading the scriptures? Always a connection. It's a gracious signal. So we're disappointed. The land had rest for 40 years. Yehu. Interesting enough, the last time we hear that in the book of Judges. It's not getting better. It's getting worse, people. The situation in Israel is getting worse. It's deteriorating into moral, spiritual decline. And I don't know about you, but all that does for me is give us a clear picture of how wide the gap really is between our fallen sinful nature and the perfection and the glory and the holiness of God. There is a wide gap, a need. We need a leader that does not let us down. We need a king that is perfect, that is faithful. I don't know if you're feeling that. We need a king. That's, that seems to be like old school language. Shouldn't I say maybe we need a CEO or something? Does that sound better? No, it doesn't. Just say no, it doesn't. We need a king. Christianity Explored this week, we were having a wonderful conversation, uh, had some amazing questions from people who are investigating and searching. And they asked this question. We're hearing about all this good news. Mark, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hearing about all this good news. It's supposed to be amazing, right? There seems to be an infatuation in the author about power and authority. How is that good news? Right? Jesus is teaching with authority. He's healing with authority. He's He's telling the waves and the winds to be still. I don't get, like, why is that such good news? All this power and authority. Why is that central to the teaching of Christianity? Amazing question, right? You see, we live in a day and age where we don't trust authority. We don't trust power. Because it's typically going to let us down. It's typically going to oppress us and abuse us. We struggle with authority. Who are you to tell me? We like our own authority to call our own shots. But any news of someone on the outside coming in with authority, it can't be good news. That's got to be bad news, right? Because we want freedom. We're Americans. Matter of fact, if we don't like you, we just vote you out. It's interesting how we're always back and forth, right? Why? We just like the power of voting cats out. Nope. Next. We think we're in charge. We like that. Again, our democracy, we power the people. I'm not, hey, I'm not hating. But I think it goes to show that we don't trust it. We don't like it. How is it good news? Well, again, the Israelites, the people of Israel in the time of Rome, again, were living under the power and oppressive authority of Rome. So a strong, trustworthy king who would defeat their enemies and usher in a new kingdom where they would enjoy the blessings of that king who loved them. That's good news. That's good news. And that's the kind of king that we need. We need a king that will never let us down. 
We need a king that will give us hope to change our disappointment into hope that will give us hope of lasting deliverance. We need that king. And if we understand how wide the gap is, if we understand the depth of our need, that it's not Midian, it's sin. It's the oppressive nature of sin, the problems on the inside of us. And we do not have the power and the authority to do anything about this problem. Then we will say to ourselves, rule over us, O king. Rule over us. Please, we submit to you. And you ask, who is this king? Well, it's not Gideon, and it's not anyone else in Judges. It is Jesus Christ. He is the king that will never let us down and that gives us hope in the midst of our disappointment. He gives us hope for lasting deliverance. How so? Well, he does not shy away from the call that the Father has put on him, and he takes it. He becomes the king the Father wants him to be. He's perfect. He's sinless. He's faithful. He does not venture off into the magnetic pull of idolatry, but he is perfectly faithful to the Father in every way in his time here on earth. And he does not let us down. He lays his life down for us. He does not ask for the spoil. Oh, no. He gives the treasures of heaven to us to share in his glory and his salvation. He does not assume his throne through uh, some sort of pride or some sort of uh, twisted self-pity or lack of confidence. No, he assumes his throne in obedience, even an obedience that leads him to die on a cross for the very sin that oppresses us. He is content to receive the reward of his suffering, his bride. And that, my friends, is the happy ending we still long for. That's the happy ending we still wait for. When the king returns and all of his enemies are finally and fully defeated, And it ushers in a time of eternal peace, rest for the people of God, where he rules and reigns and provides his people with all the blessings of his kingdom. Something that no nation on this earth could ever offer us or give us. He gives us forgiveness of all of our sin. He gives us a new spirit and a new heart that will not pull us away magnetically to idolatry, to replacing him. Oh no, he puts a new spirit in us and he empowers us to live by faith in his name. We need a king that will not let us down ever and a king that gives us hope for lasting deliverance. Every person in this room, know this, trust this, turn away from this God's culture, uh, the cultures of the gods of this culture, and turn to Christ. Trust in Him, rest in Him, obey His voice, ask Him, rule over me, rule over me. 
You're enough. You're perfect. And I submit myself to you. If you do that and have done that, you're forever free. Forever free from the tyranny of sin. And you have a new heart. And His Spirit lives in you. Giving you the power necessary to live faithfully to Him. Hope does not disappoint us. Amen? God has poured His love into our hearts. Jesus is a King that never will let us down. Let's praise Him for that. Amen. King Jesus, our glory and honor and praise and worship be to you. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May we respond to His rule, His reign, with joy and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.